All right, everybody, thanks so much for joining us for the SWARP webinar and podcast series. Just wanted to start with a disclaimer today and note that this subject matter may be upsetting or distressing to some listeners. So please keep this in mind prior to listening and viewing. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. It's the latest edition of this WARP podcast and webinar series. I'm Dr. Lauren Valdis, Medical Director of Education, and I have here joining with me Dr. Irfan Hatam, who's a fifth-year, almost-finished emergency medicine resident here. He'll be completing his training and going to work down in Windsor starting in the fall. Thanks so much for joining me today, Dr. Hatam. Thank you for having me. Did you want to tell us a little bit about what we're going to be talking about today? Absolutely. So today, the topic of the presentation will be on trauma in pregnancy, a special population that is important to know how to manage. All right. Well, thanks so much. So with that, we'll jump right in. All right. So Dr. Hatam, why don't you tell us about why you chose to discuss this topic with us today? I have a special interest in pregnancy. My wife is actually an OB-GYN resident, and I want to learn more about it. So with that said, I researched the following topics, and I'll read out the outline for everyone. So the goals of this presentation are to review the epidemiology of trauma in pregnancy, to look at an overview of the anatomic and physiologic changes in pregnancy, to describe how to optimize paramedic management due to anatomic and physiologic changes in pregnancy, and see how we should do modifications to our routine assessments and treatments during pregnancy, and modifications to critical procedures related to trauma in pregnancy, as well as modifications to cardiac arrest in pregnancy, and finally to review a few special situations in the traumatic pregnant patient and how it affects management. Okay, so Dr. Hitame, we like to start with a case to help frame some of the learning. Why don't you take it away? Absolutely. So the case of the day will be the following. You recalled about a 30-year-old female who has had an MVC at highway speeds. The scene description is as follows. It's a single vehicle, rollover MVC. The patient was a belted driver. There was a prolonged extrication that required fire. There were no other passengers on board, and the patient is visibly gravid. And so, Dr. Hatam, when the paramedics arrive, is she extricated at this point? As the paramedics arrive, the patient has been able to be extricated and you're able to get her onto your stretcher. The vital signs that you are able to record are as follows. A heart rate of 115, a rest rate of 28, a blood pressure of 100 over 75, SpO2 of 95% on room air, and a temperature of 37 degrees. And Dr. Hatam, to sort of roll out or finish up the vital signs, what are the GCS and blood glucose if required? The patient's GCS at this point is 15. She is following commands and moving all limbs, and the blood glucose is normal at 5. Okay, perfect. As you continue with your primary survey, you find that the airway is patent. Her breathing is equal bilaterally and non-labored. On your circulation assessment, however, you do find that the abdomen is tender with some bruising. There's no overt external bleeding that you see. The pelvis is stable, and she does have a quite gravid uterus. On your disability assessment, as previously mentioned, she is GCS 15 and moving all her limbs. And on your exposure part of your assessment, you do notice that she has some vaginal bleeding. All right, so we'll take a moment there and pause and think about how this scene description and this sort of physical exam and vital sign findings 
might cause you to act differently or how you would manage this patient. So we'll pause on that and then we'll move and talk a little bit more about trauma and pregnancy. Before we progress with more of the nuanced topics, let's talk a bit about the epidemiology of trauma in pregnancy. Maternal death is actually very rare, luckily, only about 6.1 in 100,000 deaths for maternal death as per Health Canada statistics. About 20% of maternal deaths are attributed to trauma, and the most common causes of trauma in pregnancy are the following. MVCs, as was seen in this case, falls, unfortunately interpersonal violence and penetrating trauma are also high on the list. Interestingly, when we compare pregnant patients to non-pregnant patients who are involved in trauma, pregnant patients actually fare better, and the reasons for that are due to physiologic and anatomic changes that we'll discuss further, such as having more plasma volume and also having a large uterus that protects their visceral organs. All right, so thanks so much, Dr. Hadam, for framing that for us. So we're going to talk a little bit about some of the anatomic and physiologic changes in pregnancy, but I think this really highlights the fact that, unfortunately, these are cases that we come across, and we want to know how to best manage these patients. So really appreciate you coming today and dropping some pearls on how to do so. So let's jump into, then, the next topic, which is the anatomic and physiologic changes in pregnancy. Without further ado, let's jump into the anatomic and physiologic changes in pregnancy and how it will affect our primary survey. We will be using an ABCDE approach. All right, so starting with A on your primary survey for airway, Dr. Hatem, what is different in the airway of a pregnant patient? There are lots of changes, actually. Due to the increased circulating volume, they have lots of edema all over their body, including their legs, but from an airway perspective, their upper airway becomes much more difficult to visualize due to upper airway edema, as can be seen in the epiglottis in the picture on the right. They also get more friable mucosa, so with increased laryngoscopy attempts, you can get increased bleeding and increased obscuring of the airway. They also have lots of issues with reflux due to decrease in the lower esophageal tone and delayed gastric emptying. This makes the risk of aspiration much higher in the pregnant patient. And finally, due to the increased fatty tissue and increased breast size, it may be more difficult to open the mouth or extend the neck, making access to the airway much more difficult. So Dr. Hatam, this is all really good information, but what should paramedics do with this information? From an ACP perspective, if you have to go forward with intubating, make sure that your first attempt is the best. Certainly, all pregnant patients should be considered a difficult airway. Make sure to pre-oxygenate. Make sure to consider using a bougie if available, and you want the first pass to be the best pass. And why is that? Why do you want the first pass to be the best pass, Dr. Hadim? We know that in the literature, multiple intubation attempts and airway issues are a high cause of mortality for all trauma patients, including pregnant patients. Gotcha. So all of that edema, that friable tissue, and that increased risk of aspiration you really want to minimize all of that stuff. You don't want to have to go in again. First, best, great words of wisdom. What about the PCP scope, Dr. Hatam? Any words of wisdom for the scope as well? From a PCP perspective, make sure to have suction ready. Make sure to elevate the head of the bed in order to reduce the risk of aspiration. Make sure to use an oral airway to try and displace some of that tissue over and have better success with BVM. 
from a BVM perspective, try and use a two-person technique if possible to try and create the best seal. And if, if using a superglottic airway, remember it may be more difficult to position due to increased upper airway edema. So these patients have particularly hostile airways, so you just want to really make sure that you make any type of airway intervention, the first attempt, your best attempt, because following attempts will be more bloody and more difficult. Okay, that's great, Dr. Hatam. Moving on to step two of your primary survey, B for breathing, what is different in the pregnant patient? Pregnant patients have an increased respiratory rate due to their increased oxygen demand due to carrying a fetus. So the typical SpO2 target that is quoted is around 95% for them. They also have a baseline respiratory alkalosis. That's because of their increased respiratory rate. Finally, they also have altered respiratory dynamics. They have a lower functional residual capacity, which is the total amount of air they are moving or have in their lungs. They also have decreased compliance, which means that they need increased pressures in their airways to generate similar volumes to a non-pregnant patient. This has implications for difficult positive pressure ventilation and also an increased risk of tension pneumothorax if they were to have chest trauma. All right, that's great information, Dr. Hatam. And what should paramedics do differently exactly with pregnant patients? Paramedics should try and target the higher end of the SpO2s for this oxygen therapy standard from the BLS-PCS guidelines. Typically, the BLS-PCS guidelines state that for supplemental oxygen, they should be targeting 92 to 96% for most patients. I would say for pregnant patients, we should target the higher end of that range, so the 95 to 96%. And if the patient is going to be ventilated, is there a different respiratory rate target that should be aimed for with that respiratory alkalosis that happens? If you're ventilating a patient with an endotracheal tube or a supraglottic airway, our respiratory target should be slightly higher. We should aim for the 20 to 26 range. That's great. And I think you mentioned the other difficulties when it comes to bagging, but can you just reiterate those one more time? Yeah. When we are using BVMs or supraglottic airways or endotracheal tubes for that matter, it may be more difficult to position these. And also, we may need to use higher pressures in order to generate the volumes we need to properly ventilate these patients. All right, moving on to C for circulation as part of our primary exam. Dr. Hatem, what is different in pregnant patients? Pregnant patients run their blood pressures lower than most patients. On average, the pregnant patient decreases their systolic blood pressure by 15 to 20 millimeters of mercury from their baseline. The reason for this is the increased prostaglandin release that causes smooth muscle relaxation during pregnancy. They also have an increase in their heart rate by about 15 to 20 beats per minute. This is in order to accommodate an increase in cardiac output that's required for carrying a baby. As a reminder, cardiac output is our stroke volume, or the volume our heart pumps per beat times our heart rate. That's the total amount of volume that's being pumped per minute by our heart. Another big change is the amount of blood flow that goes through the uterine arteries. In a non-pregnant female, only 60 milliliters of blood travel through those per minute, whereas in a pregnant patient, that increases tenfold to about 600 milliliters of blood. Finally, we also have some hematologic changes. There's a significant increase in the plasma volume, but a disproportionate smaller increase in the red blood cell volume, or hemoglobin. This causes a relative anemia, which means that a hemorrhaging pregnant patient may decompensate much more quickly. Also, they have an increase in clotting factors, so they're much more hypercoagulable than non-pregnant patients. 
this slightly increases their risk of DIC as well as postpartum hemorrhage, which are important considerations in trauma. And Dr. Hatem, I keep asking this, but what should paramedics do with this information? Paramedics must understand that the blood pressure and heart rate we are seeing in front of us may not in fact be shock all the time. As a rule of thumb, if the blood pressure of any patient is less than 90 millimeters of mercury, certainly this must be addressed. However, as we will review in our case, blood pressures in the low 100s and heart rates in the low 100s can actually be normal for pregnant patients. Also, treating bleeding in a pregnant patient is pretty much the same as any other patient. We must apply pressure over any hemorrhaging wound. We must bind an unstable pelvis. However, there's a very key maneuver in managing hemodynamics of a pregnant patient that we'll discuss in the next slide. A large consideration for any pregnant patient is the concept of supine hypotensive syndrome. This can affect a patient's cardiac output by up to 30%. This happens when a pregnant uterus is sitting and compressing on the vena cava and aorta. And Dr. Hatem, when does this start? Is this first trimester? How far along in pregnancy does this occur? Usually this becomes a major issue at 20 weeks and above. The way we can estimate if someone is 20 weeks is either if they tell us or if we can palpate the uterus above the belly button or umbilicus. So even halfway through pregnancy, you can have a significant amount of hypotension just from that uterus sitting on the major vessels while the patient is supine? Correct. Oh, wow. Okay. Good to know. So Dr. Hetam, how can we reduce some of the effects of this supine hypotension syndrome? So the two ways we can address this is either by the leftward tilt maneuver, where we place things on the right side of the patient to slightly tilt them to the left about 30 degrees. Or if we have an extra pair of hands, we can do the left manual displacement maneuver, where we push the uterus over to the left. The goal of this is to offload the vena cava and increase the venous blood return back to the heart, which again can significantly increase our cardiac output. I'm just going to add a quick note that the picture that you see there on your left, the leftward tilt maneuver, has an image of someone doing CPR. The AHA recommends doing CPR on a hard, flat space with left manual displacement. So it's going to be tricky for you in the back of the ambulance to have somebody on an angle with something hard under them to perform efficient CPR. So just remember that the AHA recommends in the setting of cardiac arrest to perform left manual displacement on a hard, flat space. Rounding out our primary survey in the setting of trauma, E for exposure, Dr. Hatam, what is different in a pregnant patient? So during our exposure portion of our primary survey, we must not forget to check for vaginal bleeding. This is important because it can lead to missing very important diagnoses in the traumatic pregnant patient. Vaginal bleeding may be a sign of placental abruption, and it could also indicate pelvic fracture, which in the literature has shown a significant increase in fetal mortality because as you can imagine, the pelvic bones are right beside the uterus. Well, I was going to ask you why exposure and checking for that vaginal bleeding is important in pregnancy, but you already answered that question. So there you have it, folks. All right, now we're going to talk about some of the particular obstetric complications. Dr. Hatam, take it away. So as mentioned in the previous slide, placental abruption is a large risk in trauma. It can happen in about 5 to 50% of traumas. 
The pathophysiology of this is there is a shearing force at the junction of the myometrium and placenta, which causes tearing of blood vessels and a hematoma to form there. The symptoms of placental abruption are things such as abdominal pain, very importantly, vaginal bleeding, which is what we may notice, uterine contractions, fetal heart rate abnormalities, which we may not pick up until the hospital. Most importantly, this is a clinical diagnosis, and vaginal bleeding is one of the first symptoms, so all the more reason to check for this during our exposure. And Dr. Hatam, how does this change paramedic management? From a hemorrhage perspective, try and apply direct pressure to abate the bleeding. From a destination perspective for the patient, you should transport the patient as per your service policy or follow the field trauma triage guidelines. And Dr. Hatam, that highlights a really important part to remember that pregnant patients greater than or equal to 20 weeks gestation, so again, just as Dr. Hatam has described, if the uterus is at or above the level of the umbilicus, you assume that they're 20 weeks, or of course, if they tell you, that they fall into step four of the field trauma triage guidelines. Another very rare cause of vaginal bleeding in the traumatic pregnant patient is uterine rupture. Luckily, it only happens in about 0.6% of traumas. Unfortunately, when this does happen, there's almost a 100% fetal mortality. Some of the symptoms that may clue us into this on top of vaginal bleeding is severe shock in the mother, significant abdominal distension, irregular urine contour, and also palpable fetal parts where they shouldn't be. An example of this is seen in the picture on the right where you can see the legs of the fetus are in the amniotic sac, but the body is not. And that's uh, pretty dramatic and pretty terrible, the Dr. Hatam. From the paramedic management perspective, is there anything that they should do differently? The same recommendations as for the previous slide apply. Transport to hospital is the most imperative thing at this point. That's great. Thanks so much. And I think we're going to jump back next into our case. So going back to the case that we had at the top of the presentation, the patient was a 30-year-old pregnant female involved in a highway MVC. Her vital signs were a heart rate of 115, a resp rate of 28, a blood pressure of 100 over 75, an SpO2 of 95% on room air, and a temperature of 37 degrees with a GCS of 15. Now that we know more about the physiology of pregnancy, we can note that some of these vital signs, although they are flagged as abnormal, are maybe actually within the normal range for a pregnant patient. Going through our primary survey, the important findings were that she had some abdominal tenderness with bruising, as well as vaginal bleeding on our exposure assessment. These will raise significant concerns for obstetrical complications such as abruption or uterine rupture. That's great, Dr. Hatam. And then just to review really quickly, with this case and what we've just learned, what would change in paramedic management? Although these vital signs are within the normal ranges of pregnancy, there is a risk for deterioration, so close monitoring is imperative. If the patient's systolic blood pressure drops below 90, we can use our IV and fluid therapy medical directive to address this. Also, if she has ongoing bleeding, we should manage this with direct pressure. And from a destination perspective, follow your local service policy or field trauma triage guidelines. All right, Dr. Hatam, that is wonderful going through some of the anatomic and physiologic changes in pregnancy that occur and how that changes your initial assessment and potential management. Are there any other sort of recommendations or changes to patient care that you'd like to highlight? 
So going through the recommendations from the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada, there are certain notable things that are relevant to pre-hospital care. Over the next few slides, we'll review how certain procedures are modified, how certain special trauma populations, such as the cardiac arrest patient or the electrocution patient, should be managed, as well as we'll end off with some trauma prevention recommendations set out by the SOGC. Okay, so let's get started with procedure modification. As we've already discussed, the anatomy and physiology of these patients change quite a bit. Let's talk about if or how that should impact any of our procedures. Dr. Hertian, take it away. So let's first start with intraosseous access. In pregnant patients, the humeral site is actually preferred. This is, again, because of supine hypotensive syndrome. As you can imagine, any IV access or IO access below the pelvis may cause the medications or fluids we're administering to not be able to get into the systemic circulation. Secondly, when addressing a pneumothorax, needle decompression in a pregnant patient is slightly modified. In the ALS-PCS tension pneumothorax medical directive, the two options are given to the paramedics. The first is that you can do the anterior mid second midclavicular line approach or use the fourth, a fifth or fourth intercostal space in the axillary line. If going to the anterior axillary line approach, target the higher rib space, so the fourth rib space. The reason we do this in pregnant patients is because the diaphragm and abdominal contents may sit two to four centimeters higher. All right, so as you recall from when we trained how to use this site at the inaugural ACP hands-on day, we discussed from a landmarking perspective that the nipple is typically at the line of the fifth intercostal space. We also mentioned then, and we'll highlight now, that the anatomy changes a little bit when you're pregnant, and there's more adipose tissue, and therefore the nipple may be displaced more than you think it is. As you recall from your ACP hands-on day, the fourth intercostal space landmarking site is the bottom of the axillary hair. As Dr. Hatam just highlighted for us, this is the space we're looking for, the fourth or higher space in these patients because the diaphragm is higher. So don't use the nipple in these patients, use the bottom of the axillary hairline in order to go for that fourth intercostal space, which is a little bit higher than the fifth space that we're looking for because, again, the diaphragms are higher in these patients. Take it away, Dr. Hatam. The next procedure that we'll discuss in the pregnant patient is cardioversion. Luckily, it is safe for both mom and baby. The only modification that is stated in the guidelines is to remove any fetal monitoring that's there. However, that won't be an issue for my EMS colleagues. However, from a pelvic binder placement perspective, it is still placed in the typical position. However, beware of supine hypotensive syndrome and use the uterine manipulation techniques as discussed previously to address this. All right, and Dr. Hatem, are there any other recommendation uh, changes in patient management you want to chat about? Yeah, there's a special population, uh, the maternal cardiac arrest patient. Luckily, this is very rare, only about 1 in 30,000 cases. The EMS recommendations are to perform standard ACLS as well as add the leftward uterine tilt maneuver or uterine displacement maneuver. The EMS, ALS, PCS guidelines actually state that if the fundus is above the umbilicus or if the patient is greater than 20 weeks gestation, consider very early transport to hospital after one analysis. 
The reason for this is that there's a critical procedure that may be done in the hospital to try and resuscitate the patient. This procedure is called a perimortem hysterotomy or a perimortem C-section. The benefits of this procedure are it rapidly resolves supad hypotensive syndrome and it can redirect a large volume of blood flow back to the systemic circulation. As we previously discussed, about 600 milliliters per minute travels through the uterine arteries. And although the main goal of perimortem hysterotomy is to try and resuscitate the mom, it can also save the baby, which is an added benefit. And this procedure is just as described. So it's while the mom is arrested, the baby is taken out via C-section. Correct. Some more details about perimortem C-section are that the goal overall is to try and achieve the completion of the procedure from about four to five minutes after the arrest of the mother. However, understanding that a transport time of four to five minutes would be quite rare, it is reassuring to know that there are case reports of good neurologic outcomes for mom and baby even up to 15 to 20 minutes post-arrest. So the overall bottom line from the EMS perspective is that time is imperative and early transport to hospital gives mom and baby the best chance of good outcome. All right, and Dr. Hittam, I believe you wanted to talk about some other recommendations uh, as well with particular special populations. Yeah, so for the penetrating trauma patients, the SOGC actually states that for pregnant patients, penetrating injuries in pregnant trauma patients are managed in essentially the same way as non-pregnant patients. In fact, penetrating trauma in pregnant patients is actually protective for the mother. As you can see in the CT scan shown on the right, the large uterus and large fetus displaces all the visceral organs of the mother, which actually decreases the risk of injury to the mother. In fact, this is to the point where only 15 to 40% of pregnant patients have visceral injury versus 80% of non-pregnant patients. Unfortunately, on the flip side, this means that the fetal mortality in penetrating trauma is extremely high, greater than 70%. From EMS perspective, the bottom line is there's no change in management. All right, and another special population you mentioned was electrocution. Take it away. So amniotic fluid is actually a very good conductor. So any electrocution has an increased risk to the fetus. The damage to the fetus can actually be occult, and that's why monitoring is very important. From an EMS perspective, you can consider doing a 12 EDCG. And if seeing a patient with this in the field and they're considering not transporting to hospital because they feel that they have had a minimal injury, the risk should be made aware to the patient. The bottom line is that the patient should be transported to hospital for monitoring and assessment. And Dr. Hatim, if they were brought to the hospital, how long would they have to be monitored for? What does the SOGC say? The SOGC lays out certain risk factors, and if a patient meets any of these risk factors, they are typically monitored for up to 24 hours. That is a great pearl for our paramedics. Remember that if you have a patient who's refusing service or refusing transport to hospital, that the risks and benefits need to be fully explained to the patients. Well, here is just a little bit more information on the risk of not going to hospital if a pregnant patient is electrocuted. So there you go. And the last pearl that we're going to talk about with regards to recommendations is a bit of a switch up. This one's about trauma prevention. Take it away, Dr. Hatem. As with all other populations, maternal deaths are also reduced from seatbelts 
from 33% from to 5% with proper seatbelt use. As seen in the picture on the right, proper seatbelt use is slightly different in the pregnant patient versus the non-pregnant patient. For a pregnant patient, the seatbelt strap should be placed below the uterus and th between the breasts. No strap should be sitting on the abdomen over the uterus. The reason for this is because there are case reports of airbags as well as seatbelts causing uterine rupture. However, when we look at the literature, the overall benefit is significantly higher than the risk of this. So seatbelts are recommended in pregnancy. All right, Dr. Tam, that is great. And that's a pearl for you, not just for patient care, but maybe also for our own personal or family use, just to know what to do with a patient who's maybe a little bit different now that they're pregnant. So thank you very much. Well, Dr. Hatam, this has been a super educational and action-packed session. Lots of pearls for assessment and management. Can you just take us through an overall summary because there was a ton of good stuff in there? So first we started with a review of the epidemiology of trauma and pregnancy. Next we went and did an overview of the anatomic and physiologic changes in pregnancy. Quickly to recap, we talked about how they have a very difficult airway, how they may have altered vital signs, However, this should not affect our overall management of these vital signs. We also described how to optimize paramedic management due to the anatomic and physiologic changes in pregnancy. We talked about modifications to routine assessments and treatments, such as ensuring to know what gestational age the patient is, most importantly knowing if they are over 20 weeks. We talked about using the uterine displacement maneuver if they are over 20 weeks and also on our exposure assessment, looking for vaginal bleeding, as this may be a sign of abruption. Next, we talked about modifications of critical procedures related to trauma and pregnancy. We talked about the ideal IO placement being the humeral site. We also talked about when decompressing a pneumothorax, choosing the higher rib space in the anterior axillary approach at the fourth intercostal space. And next, we talked about the modifications in cardiac arrests, the most important point being early transport to hospital being paramount because of the performance of perimortem C-section. And finally, we talked about a few special situations in trauma patients, such as electrocution and trauma prevention guidelines. Well, Dr. Hatam, again, thank you very much for joining us today. Tons of great information in there for all of our listeners. Really appreciate you taking the time to come and join us. Thank you very much. And a big thank you to our audience for joining us today. If you have any questions about any aspect of the webinar, feel free to shoot me an email. My email is listed there on the slide. Thanks, everybody. Take care.